0: You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information.
1: Welcome to M Squared TechCast. A live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Roush and Mike Brennan.
2: Hey there, good day. I'm Matt Roush. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with another uh, episode of the M Squared TechCast. We will get to uh, Fred Brown, our very own uh, Dr. Doom, uh, on the pandemic in just a moment. Uh, but we're going to start the show today uh, with a fellow, with a colleague of mine at Lawrence Technological University, a couple of them, in fact. Uh, Sabrina Collins, who is executive director of the LTU Marburger STEM Center, and uh, Jacqueline Smith, who is the STEM Center's uh, outreach coordinator. Uh, this Marburger STEM Center is basically LTU's clearinghouse for all things K 12. Uh, we're trying to get kids interested in science, technology, engineering. Uh, arts and design and mathematics careers uh, and the Marburger STEM Center is the way we do that. Um, Sabrina, welcome to the show and I'd like to start things off by asking you about uh, how we have changed our high school and uh, program uh, for Extreme Science Saturdays uh, due to the pandemic. So tell us a little bit about the virtual Extreme Science Saturdays that are coming up in the new year that's uh, right upon us.
3: Sure, thank you for uh so much for uh, for having me again so um you know prior to the uh pandemic we had uh you know in-face uh, uh activities where high school students would come on our campus and uh engage in some hands-on activities they would help us make liquid nitrogen ice cream all of that fun stuff but because of the pandemic we've had to uh shift online you know our programming and so this is the first time that we've actually uh, we've actually done that. And so our approach, you know, really is because kids are already online, you know, uh, during the week because of school. So we wanted to make sure that whatever we do online, that it's engaging and the students, you know, are are, are really involved with uh, with the discussion. So we're learning a lot. You know, this is the first time that we've actually uh, done this, and. The first one in January focuses on computer coding, which Mm. resonates with a lot of uh, young people. So we're targeting, you know, high school and uh, middle school with this. The second one in February is going to focus on uh, virtual entrepreneurial mindset, you know, establishing your own business. And that's really kind of a um, it's related uh, to a summer camp led by uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Jackie. Jacqueline Stavros and uh, Dr. Uh, Matt Cole, and then finally, uh, Jacqueline's going to lead a, a hands-on workshop where students get to do something really groovy, making their very own lava lamps. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I like it. <laughs> okay, so so uh, so when are these programs, um, and how do people, uh, if they're interested, sign up?
3: They can sign up online. You know, go to Lawrence Tech's website type in uh, Extreme Science Saturdays or the Marburger STEM Center, and they can sign up online. These are free. These are on Saturdays, so January 9th, February 13th, and March 13th, so from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. So we don't take up too much time for the kids on, on Saturdays with something just to get them excited you know, about STEM because we really want to get students to think about how STEM impacts their daily, uh, their daily lives.
2: Okay. All right. So once again, these programs are free, which uh, is right. kind of an advantage. They were not free when they were in person, right? So this right. is... Right.
3: That's, that's right. Absolutely. ...for
2: everyone. Yep. Right. Okay. Jacqueline, welcome to the program. You're a first-time guest. Um, wanted to talk to you. First of all, I'm just curious, how do you make your own lava lamp? How does that work?
4: <laughs> yeah. Um, it's actually really cool because it you can make your own lava lamp with things that you just have in your own house. Um, so we use, um, vegetable oil and Alka-Seltzer tablets. Um, and then sometimes we add, uh, food coloring to make it a little snazzier, you know, and, uh, you can even stick, like, I stuck my phone light underneath it and turned the lights off and, um, illuminated it even. So it's, it's kind of cool because I guess lava lamps, I kind of thought maybe the kids might not know what they are because they're kind of older, uh,
2: yeah, something from my era. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> I,
5: I actually have a lava lamp in my living room that I turn on from time to time, you know, just so I can watch the, I guess it's wax or something, bubble all over the place, right? Yeah.
4: yeah, I mean, whether they like knew what they were or not, they think they're cool. So <laughs> it's really fun.
2: <laughs> okay, so the Extreme Science Saturdays are for high school students. Uh, tell us a little bit about the virtual workshops, uh, Jacqueline, that you're doing for middle school students. And and that's that's a, a, something that's near and dear to my heart, because when I worked for the Engineering Society of Detroit, we always said, you've got to reach them in middle school. By the time they're in high school, if they think they can't do math and science, that's ingrained in them, and you're already almost too late. You really got to start, you know, you catch them in middle school and get them interested. So talk a little bit about these workshops.
4: Yeah, you're 100% correct. We have to start early um, so that they have as many positive experiences as possible to carry them over uh, into high school. Um, So yeah, so our workshops that we we always did in person, uh, we've transitioned into the virtual. Um, So one of the ones that we did recently, uh, for example, was uh, the Science of Baking a Cake Hmm. Um, which the kids really got a kick out of. So things that we, they can do in their own house. Cause science is everywhere. Science is all around you. Um, and especially in the kitchen, actually. So a lot of them were pretty psyched to, uh, learn how baking relates to science. And then at the end, they got a tasty treat that they made. So, um, so that one was really fun. Hmm.
2: All right. What are some of the other topics?
4: Um, another one we did around Halloween, we did a Halloween-themed workshop where we did elephant toothpaste, um, which is a chemical reaction using yeast and um, hydrogen peroxide. It makes, like, a really foamy, colorful kind of explosion, and the kids love that one. Um, so we did that out of a pumpkin so we carved a pumpkin, did the chemical reaction within the pumpkin, and it kind of oozed out of the pumpkin face, and, um, and that was really cool.
2: Yeah, any, anything that basically looks gross is, uh, you know, going to be popular with the middle school crowd.
4: Yeah, gross explosions, things yeah. like that. All
2: the fun stuff, right?
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Let and me, then
5: let me, let me ask if I may, Jacqueline. Uh, are you attracting a lot more females into STEM than than previous? I know. I don't want to do stereotypes here, but usually if I go to all these technical meetings and technology meetings, and it's a bunch of uh, men there mostly. So are are more females getting interested in in STEM now?
4: You know, um, I've heard that there are. I think Dr. Collins might know a little bit more about that if you want to elaborate, Dr. Collins.
3: Yeah, we do have, you know, so we get a lot of young women that sign up, you know, to participate in these Extreme Science Saturdays. Um, And so I'm starting to see a trend, you know, uh, with that. And it's and, you know, Matt pointed out, you know, middle school is the age to really get them because somewhere around middle school is when girls start to lose interest. You know, Um, and so you really have to uh, you have to catch them around that around fifth or sixth grade, you know, to really engage those young people.
2: Mm. Yeah, I know Lawrence Tech has been trying to become more diverse in terms of gender for forever. Um, Basically, uh, we're at about one third women now in the student body, but there are some fields uh, that are persistently 90% male. Mechanical engineering is a tough one. Um, Yeah, there are some other forms of engineering, but there are a great number of young women who are really interested in things like biomedical engineering and biomechanics right. uh, molecular and cell biology is a 50/50 program for us now right um, and I know uh, um, obviously what's what's interesting is this since we added a nursing program you know people thought well that'll be a hundred more women on campus but our our nursing program at Lawrence Tech is three times as male as the national average we've got like 30 percent men in that program so which is yeah you know, it, nationally, it's only about ten percent. So that's that's been an interesting experience for us too. And uh, my my favorite nursing people are actually the football players who are nurses. Yeah,
3: but, you know, they,
2: <laughs> they will hurt you and then they will fix you up. So you know, that's <laughs> has got how that one works. Uh, Sabrina, you are also um, an accomplished author. You've you've written an awful lot of academic papers, and uh, most recently is a book chapter. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the book that you're a part of. Um, and sort of how you approached uh, your chapter.
3: Your sure. so the uh, so it's a a recent uh, book chapter uh, published in a book called "It Advanced Teaching and uh, Inorganic Chemistry, Volumes One and 2, published by the American Chemical Society. And actually, uh, the chapter is based on a talk that I was scheduled to give at a conference, but because of the pandemic, you know, it was it was canceled. And so the editor reached out to, uh, to all of the presenters and said, would you be willing to write a book chapter based on what you would have, uh, focused on? And so my chapter, uh, focuses on how we used, uh, the movie Black Panther and Vibranium to engage young people and how that one paper that came out in 2018 actually, uh, led us to create a number of workshops and activities and other, uh, and other papers. And, you know, when, uh, Uh, Chadwick Boseman, when he passed away, Mm. that was just so devastating to me and to a lot of people. Um, And I just wanted to honor him in some way, you know, for his uh, amazing uh, portrayal. And I sent a note to the editor and I said, hey, can you please let me dedicate my chapter to, to him? And so she agreed. And I just you know, it was the movie just made such a huge impact on me. And I just wanted to celebrate, celebrate that film.
2: And I know when you first saw the film, you said that you, uh, well, you you always have your inorganic chemists' hat on, uh, but right. when you saw them talking about uh, vibranium, you were, you know, which is a fictional element, it doesn't actually exist, um, right. unfortunately, given some of its properties, because it's pretty cool stuff, but uh, right. you were instantly curious about where that would fit in the periodic table of the elements, right?
3: That That's true. And, uh, you know, whenever I watch television or movies, I can't shut off my chemistry brain. You know, so it just occurred to me that everything about that economy, that fictional Wakanda was just thriving on vibranium. And I said, okay, if it's real, where would it be? And that's what we scientists do. We come up with these questions that we think are interesting that needs an answer. (laughs) So it kind of took off from there. So uh, and I'm looking forward to I think the new film is going to be released in 2022. You know, so maybe I'll get some more inspiration at that point, too.
5: Well, you know, Captain America's shield is made out of vibranium. So
3: that is true. That is true. You know, so you got a lot of uh, fictional uh, elements, you know, uh, uh, out there. And today, uh, from what I understand is uh, the birthday of the late Stan Lee. You know, Uh so, you know, so um, just I'm just, uh, you know, I think any ways that you can if you can use science fiction to engage young people, And then create an opportunity to talk about real science and what types of uh, research and applications take place with these real elements. I think that's a win-win situation.
5: I hate to cut you off, but we're at that last minute mark that we talked about earlier when we all said 14 minutes and goes by quickly. So uh, why don't you both uh, provide information to folks up there if they want to reach out to Jacqueline, Sabrina, uh, how, how best to reach you?
3: Sure. I could always be reached on email, scollins at ltu.edu, but you can search go to the LTU website, type in Marburger STEM Center, and our information pops up.
4: Yep, same. I'm on the same website, um, but my email is jsmith19 at ltu.edu. That's the best way to reach me as well.
2: Yeah. uh, J. Smith is kind of a pretty common name, so we've had 19 (laughs) of them, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) over the years. but uh, Jacqueline, your, your program, the, the middle school workshops, you're looking for teachers right That's who you're trying to reach teachers and school administrators who want to set up these programs.
4: Yeah, if you're looking for a way to connect uh, your students to science um, like with everyday uh, everyday events, um, you know we we love reaching out to high schools and middle schools. so we're looking to do virtual works at, workshops at either.
2: Okay. Thanks very much, Jacqueline Smith and Sabrina Collins from Lawrence Technological University's Marburger STEM Center. Uh, We'll be back in just a minute with another segment of the M-Squared TechCast. For right now, it's Matt Rausch.
5: And Mike Brennan.
2: And you're watching the M-Squared TechCast at MITechnews.tv, Facebook, and a whole bunch of other places.
1: What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more
5: at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything.
1: Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Welcome back. It's Matt Roush
5: and Mike Brennan,
2: and we're back once again uh, with our weekly visit from our own resident infectious disease expert, uh, the man, the legend, the uh, the co uh, co creator of uh, over a dozen vaccines. I think you were involved in the creation of right, something like that.
0: Half a dozen, half a dozen, but half a dozen. Okay, okay. so So that's three million
2: people a year. (laughs) Okay, so that's that's Fred Brown, and he's back to uh, give us the latest updates on uh, the coronavirus pandemic and uh, the vaccines uh, that are apparently quite effective at uh, uh, reducing the severity of the disease um, one of the
5: thing, yeah one of the things we didn't get to last week cuz fred has so much material uh, by the way, how did your seventy-four slides and and forty-five minutes go with those other folks? Did that work out for you, or I
0: cut it down to sixty-eight minutes. <laughs> I six, sixty-eight slides, and uh, yes, it was okay. They they had a couple of questions at the end, but uh, we went through it all. That uh, was to the Michigan Economic Forum, and uh, who who you know does all the economics for Michigan. And I we had to skip through a lot of the economic sections, which probably was just as well because they probably know a lot more about economics than I do. But we went through it all, and. Okay. Uh, and, uh, I was yeah, going to ask if you
2: maybe set up a, a stopwatch and it just a, after every e- after every forty seconds or so it would just go ding and then you'd have to go to the <laughs> next, right, next line. Line. automatic.
5: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Well, one of the things that we didn't get to that we wanted to get to was how safe are these vaccines? Because I've been I, I try to keep up with my reading on this. Obviously, you have much better information than I. But I'm seeing side effects with some of these and different issues coming up. But what's your yeah, take the, on The, the occasional
2: uh, strong allergic reaction seems to be happening,
0: um, which I guess isn't that unusual. But uh, That's right. Yeah. So the safety actually uh, is starting to look slightly better than the flu vaccine. Uh, Dr. Fauci came out today and said that actually, if you're taking, you know, the flu vaccine, uh, which we have a lot of experience in, seems to be even, uh, you know, this just the new the new mRNA vaccines are even safer than that. I'm I don't want to say that yet because we still have some longer term issues to go through. But well, if you want, I can I can kind of talk. I have a couple slides I can show you if you're interested, right. or we can just talk it through. So no,
5: no, we, just long as it's not like 58 or something, we'll be okay. So.
0: <laughs> So on the safety, remember we talked about these these four big fa- factors, and we went through efficaciousness last time, and it's ninety five percent efficacious, which is fabulous. Um, and uh, but we don't know whether it actually reduces the transmission yet or not, and that's a big factor because we could just be reducing symptoms. If that happens, what happens is the COVID virus stays in the environment uh, because we don't can't reduce this transmission. Finds its hosts every once in a while, it'll find someone who isn't vaccinated or is super susceptible at, at risk, and will kill them as it does to. Today, uh but are but but for most people who have the who have the uh vaccine the symptoms won't be that bad. Um the issue becomes if you've got an awful lot of the stuff in the environment and you're constantly sick, your you lose your productivity. Um and if we don't know um whether or not even low symptoms can cause bad long haul effects, which we know they can, um then you can still have a lot of 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 you know lingering issues, uh, cardiovascular issues, central nervous system issues, fatigue issues, uh, and so on that we've seen in long-haul effects of people even with low symptoms. Uh, for example, I told you about my cousin who, uh, you know, had it and didn't even know he had it, came back and now has uh, Girion-Barre syndrome, uh, hmm. uh, GBS, and, you know, has to had to relearn to walk, had to relearn to talk, uh, even, th- and as, uh, even though the symptoms are completely asymptomatic, it t- turns out now he has long-term GBS and he's going to have to get, you know, infusions every month. Uh, you know, our, our, if that happens to a, no, a large number of people who get the disease but aren't very symptomologic, uh, even with a vaccine, then we've got problems. Um, uh, but we're, we're still finding that out. In three months, we should know uh, whether or not it's effective in reducing the transmission. We have evidence that we think that it can reduce transmission between 50 and 80 hmm. percent, um, uh, but we're, we're uh, see, I'm sorry, 50 48 and 62% uh, is what Moderna is saying right now. That's very, uh, you know, it's not, unsub- it's not really what one of their end are. They've got to redo a lot of the work, but we think it may be in that range, which would be great, you know, because we've reduced transmission that actually kills off the virus. Now, as far as safety goes, you can see in the checks, this is what we've given the current virus credit for. Uh, let me put it on slideshow so you guys can see it more easily. Um. And the check marks indicate that, uh, you know, my, in my opinion, after looking at all of the clinical results, um, the current virus clinical trials have demonstrated that it has a low rate of serious adverse events. Uh, serious adverse events are ones that actually affect your 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 fundamental physiology and organ systems, mm. uh, and we we see that happening um, every once in a while. Uh, at, at we we saw, for example, um, that. Uh, there's Bell's palsy. And we saw that in the placebo group, one in one person got Bell's palsy anyway. And we mm-hmm. saw that in the active group, four in, at Pfizer and four in Moderna, or a total of eight people uh, got it. And that was in about 100,000. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, we're, we're, we think it's in the kind of range of about five per 10,000 instead of one per 10,000. Hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that's still not statistically significant. It still could have happened by chance that these people just happen to be, uh, you know, put in the different groups and got a bar, uh, Bell's palsy, uh, just, uh, uh, in, in the general population. Cause it does, does actually, um, hit at about eight and 10,000 rate naturally, uh, between 1.5 and eight, depending on. Uh, the situation. Naturally, it is an autoimmune disease, so it could have been a real safety event. We're not sure yet, but that's sort of the rate weight, weight we're talking about. Uh, for example, and, and as far as allergic events that you talked about, um, six people who've taken the Moderna f- uh, vaccine uh, out of about a million total have had uh, a serious adverse uh, event uh, of of, of, of uh, that, that required epinephrine. So mm-hmm. six in a million isn't too bad. You know, that's and, and, and so far no one has died because they've had the epinephrine pen. They knew they had the issue, the, the situation. They took Benadryl in advance, took epinephrine afterwards, and they they walked away fine. Uh, but they had a, a scary event, obviously, you start to get anaphylaxis. anaphylaxis and yeah, that's scary. But they knew what was going on and there wasn't any surprise. So that's uh, sort of where we are with the serious adverse events. We're talking uh, at at a rate of in the 1 in 10,000, 1 in 100,000 rate that we've seen so far on organ systems, which is is considered very safe because these could have happened. These these are not statistically significant events. Uh, They could have happened anyway. Broad clinical trial inclusion, we had a very broad basic clinical trial inclusion. You saw 20 to 25 percent were people of color. We saw uh, 10 10 percent were actually were were black, about 25 percent, up to 25 percent were Latinx. Uh, We had Pacific Islanders involved. We had uh, people of all age groups involved uh, above the age of 18, even over 85. Um, And so we didn't restrict this trial at all. Which means we had a very good, uh, broad population, and we also uh, were we also what they call very balanced. That means we didn't you know look for elderly white people with diabetes. It it was kind of naturally spread across the population as you'd expect to find them. Um, So that that also is good. It was a completely fairly unbiased sample population. If anything, it was biased toward the, the more risk. And 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 more people of color uh, than than the actual population. Uh, With the uh, we did have a couple of admissions you saw that were a little bit underrepresented. Um, We did we haven't really checked the safety for um, a significant number of HIV. Uh, HPV, uh, and and, and other long-term chronic diseases. Uh, In spite of that, the CDC came out today and said uh, that they believe, based on the data presented, that it is more risky for those people to get Covid than to take the vaccine, and therefore they are uh, advising even immunocompromised patients, upon the advice of their doctor, to take the vaccine. Even people with long-term chronic conditions that weren't, so it weren't completely represented, but had or did have some representation in the trials, to be vaccinated. So we're starting to see, and and they're and they're providing funding for those people, uh, and prov- providing prioritization for those people. So they'll be some of the first people vaccinated, um, which is uh, I- interesting. It means that they've really looked at this carefully and decided that they think, that, and I and I agree with them, that the uh, that the chances of catching COVID and the adverse events from having COVID are m- are far outweighed by taking a vaccine. That's you know we don't have complete absolute security on in terms of long term term safety. And up in the upper left hand corner, you can see that low thresholds and types of adverse events. We look, at, we, we look for them in the 1 in 10,000 rates. We're not, we're, not looking at, we're not finding them yet in the 1 in 1 million rates yet, but we will shortly after we start to roll this out. Um, and uh, we've got large number of sub subjects. The only issue we've got is, by nature of the vaccine, we only have about five months of data on any given patient. And most of the people are still kind of two months, two to three months into their total vaccine uh, after two doses. So, That's that's the only sort of area as we start to get more and more people vaccinated for a longer and longer period of time that can possibly be a problem. And if you you know immunologically, it's hard to imagine an adverse event that comes through um, six months, seven months, ten months out. You know, most of these events happen within certainly the first six weeks. Uh, that, you know, at least in our experience, it would be rare that we have, uh, extremely rare that we have uh, an adverse event occurring, you know, a year later. Are you suddenly, if something happens that you're suddenly affected by the vaccine, that's, that's doubtful that that would happen. It's possible. And, and all these trials are for a two year period. So we'll know that. But that's sort of where we are right now with with the safety. The one thing about the clinical endpoints that I wanted to say yesterday, last time we talked, is there is a chance that we could have a one dose vaccine. That's not true for the over fifty fives. If you're over fifty five, you always want to take two doses of this
1: mm. thing.
0: So they're not sure about the durability. Not sure that uh, the efficacy uh, when it drops to eighty percent instead of hundred percent, you still want to take two doses. Um, and so let's take a look at the safety data. Um, the, the, as I said, the two big issues about safety are its frequency uh, and how fast it occurs. And so we have seen, uh, we, we've got kind of gotten rid of the area of greatest risk, which is very frequent <laughs> adverse events that are occurring very quickly after you take the vaccine. We, we're pretty sure that that isn't going to happen for most people. Uh, there may be a populations out there that, that have some challenges uh, who are al- allergic, but. Uh, we don't think we're going to see much more of this. We think we've tested enough. The, there is a most the most dangerous scenario we've got is kind of looking out in the, for the next four months or so, and we have uh, a serious adverse event. Uh, and um, I don't think that's that's likely to happen. Uh, that we're going to see populations, but we'll, you know we'll see. You know we're uh, we're, we're going to start to. Stratify the populations more carefully. See a lot more very specialized populations, very special, uh, perhaps Native American populations, um, and 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 other populations uh, that may have some uh, host factors that make them uh, or recipient factors that make them uh, more susceptible, uh, or the the virus uh, the vaccine less less effective or more dangerous for some reason. But we don't think that's going to happen. The other big issue is we have to get to the one in a million plus. Uh, uh, issues where you've got very, very serious adverse events happening to very, very small populations. I don't think that's very likely either, but uh, we, we don't, uh, again, we're, we're starting to uh, close in on this range where even that, all that, that whole red spot is gonna, going to be missing. So you can see that we're, we're, we're looking carefully at the risk of what they call antibody dependent enhancement or ADE. This means you start to select for a virus. That is much more dangerous because you've had a partial vaccine or partially protected by a vaccine, and that happened. We believe in the case of uh, South Africa and the case of the UK, where somebody was on long-term medication that caused them to uh, to continually um, uh, uh, select for a more dangerous virus. And now we have a more dangerous virus, more uh, a more dangerous virus in both those countries that are slightly different. Uh, The uh, the one in South Africa uh, has 22 mutations, which is rare to have that many mutations. And the one in England has 15 mutations. So they are slightly different strains, um, but uh, that arose different, uh, differently as a result, we think of adverse selection uh, due to medication that people were on. Uh, and we're gonna start to see that. Hopefully we don't select for some, we're, right now they're selecting for things that are reproducing better, uh, but eventually we could start to uh, select for things that perhaps are more deadly. And that's we really want to make sure that it's not more deadly and that it doesn't escape our vaccines. Because right now our vaccines are very, very precise. Right, we've, we've 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 focused on a couple, literally four different proteins on the spike protein uh, that um, you know f- at various levels uh, of each of these vaccines that we're out, out after, including the vector vaccines that are coming down the pike. If we if we change those proteins just enough in the virus, because we've selected uh, for you know, rapidly, rapidly enough, we could suddenly have ourselves with ineffective vaccines. Um, that's unlikely because the spike virus is the same. The same thing that makes the spike virus super specific for the uh, the the ACE two receptor sites on the cells, which makes it allows it to inject itself into the into our cells, is the same virus that we've got. Um, we've created these um, uh, the 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 vaccines against. So. It's going to be hard, but there's a narrow there's a narrow pathway that you could imagine uh, when when you have this in, in a billion people, you could start selecting for. Hmm. So uh, it, it, you know, we're, we are going to have to watch that and make sure. You know, and luckily we've got the technology now with uh, with mRNA vaccines as well as vector vaccines, where if we have the genetic the new genetic sequence, and we're watching this pretty carefully uh, in Europe at least, um, that we could then create a new vaccine. Right. Uh, We've seen that things, but not now we're down to kind of a 10 month period where we'd be adversely affected for a few months, but we could get that that vaccine on stream pretty quickly based on our regulatory knowledge right now. If the regulators are able to say, yes, the vector technology works, it's a new, it's a new, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a new antigen that you've put in the into the vector, uh, we'll test that with a thousand patients, and you're ready to go uh, with, with, with bridging studies. You, we could get to that point and very quickly respond. The problem is that the United States only uh, looks at, you know, we right now Europe is is, is actually doing genetic uh, sequencing on about on about uh, about ten percent of of the of the samples that come in. That's a lot, right? And that's a lot of genetic sequences. We're doing it on. One one hundredth of a percent in the United States. So, we are our systems are just not up to the standard that we should be, frankly, for, for watching this, given that we're injecting so many people, so many more people than Europe has right now uh, in the space. So, that, that has to get better. And I think ultimately, WHO is going to start to recommend and, and, and require this. They've got a special uh, operation. Um, in, in WHO that, that, that asks every country to start to look at how good they are detecting virus. And I think we're going to, we're falling way short of that uh, in the United States. And we're and we're going to have to come back up to that standard just for our own. Even if we don't rejoin the WHO, we want to do it anyway to protect our citizens. So, you know, it's just a very minimal requirement right now we're, we're 84th in the, in the world as far as our ability to do that compared to all the other countries. That's not, that, that, you don't want to be at 84. You, know, you want to be a number one, two, or three. Trust me on this one. You don't want another pandemic to come through. And uh, we're kind of in the 26th percentile overall. And, that, you know, that, that's a flunking grade on, on, on anyone's scale, even if you, even you're pretty, pretty carefully on the curve. So we have to come up with standard there. Um, the, the risk of late onset uh, uh, serious adverse events, SAE stands for serious adverse event. Oh, that's, that's, yeah. And so uh, that, those are the ones that you really want to watch. The adverse events that we talk about right now are largely what they call reactogenicity. And well, we'll get into that in a second, but there's a difference between reactogenicity and it means that this, the virus is working And and you're feeling an impact of that, and a real adverse event where the virus vaccine is actually attacking parts of your body that you don't want it to go to. Um, And that, that, as I said, that's very rare. That serious adverse event is extremely rare. Uh, The the excluded populations: uh, some pregnant groups, some ethnic groups. I'm under the under 16s certainly are a big factor. And I I do worry a little bit about the children. You know, uh, on these child, it'll be very important to monitor if we can or cannot vaccinate kids. If we can vaccinate kids with a durable vaccine seen uh, at the age, uh, below the age of two, for example, that would, that would, lim- uh, and we have something that's actually reducing transmission that would actually kill off the virus. If we can't, then we'll have a lot of transmission among the young back up to the old and a lot of sickness will remain in the population. So those, t- those, that is the most significant population that we're not studying yet. And then, of course, the prior disease questions. We we can't know every prior disease people have had. We we don't know the combinations of diseases that could come together and suddenly make the vaccine a little more dangerous or less dangerous. Watch for that. We're going to get into that more and more as we actually vaccinate more and more. Um, And then the real world impact it turns out that you know in a clinical setting it's a lot easier to give a vaccine that's going to be effective than in the real world where you've got supply where you've got you know cold chain issues that can significantly dampen the effect of a vaccine the impact of a vaccine if it gets warm for too long a period of time or you 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 don't you don't get your second dose which happens a lot uh, actually almost about 50 percent of the people who require second third fourth fifth doses don't get those second third fourth fifth doses that would be uh, a big problem. Um, and so there, there's some issues about about safety we've got about uh, that 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 that, that, that will will return to about those things. Those are the critical unknowns. But overall, here's the reactogenicity profile, and you can see that if you take, um, if you take uh, the vaccine, you you know the best time, the best day of the week to take this vaccine is a Friday, and the reason for that is because uh, uh, the next day, Saturday, you won't be feeling great. Sunday, you'll be feeling pretty miserable, but by the time Monday comes around, you know, you should be getting back to normal, and certainly by Tuesday, everything's going to be really, really good. This is a, a what, you, what, what you'll what you feel. Generally, you'll, there will be some fever, uh, not on day day one, but on day two, you'll have a little bit of fever. That's where the most uh, biggest impact is. You probably want to take it, you may want to take a day off uh, for that uh, on day two. Uh, fatigue will be high, headaches will be high, chills will be, you could have chills and muscle pain, joint pain, uh, and the the second time you take this it'll be worse than the first and if you're younger than 55 it'll be worse than older than 55 so the second doses of people in the 18, kind of <laughs> in the younger kids who who get less benefits from the vaccine are actually going to be worst the worst uh, impacted so the, the people who are getting the least benefit are going to be the having the worst uh, reactogenicity, unfortunately so hopefully that won't change um, the fact that you want to take the vaccine and 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 beyond the vaccine um, but it could it could affect it, uh, but the good news is us older guys don't feel it a bit as badly. Uh, but we do actually, but us older guys actually do need two, bag, two doses for sure. <laughs> versus the younger people would maybe able to get away without a second dose. We'll have to see you what know, wait and see what Pfizer's trial says. So that's the general level of, of issue you're going to have. What's interesting is when you look at this level of issue versus what happened to the placebo group, right? The placebo group got water, uh, saline. Uh, and the control, uh, the active group actually got the vaccine 50 50. So, 17,000 people on the Pfizer uh, each got either a real dose or a, or a saline dose. 15,000 people either got a real dose or a saline dose. That's what this was based on. And you can see that people who got the saline dose also didn't feel that great, <laughs> which is important to re- recognize, right? So, statistically, the things that are most that you probably most feel are fever. Chills and muscle pain.
5: Oh um,
0: and uh, yeah, <laughs> that's wild, isn't it? The placebo- <laughs> this is why it's so important. To
5: that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you know, this is what we're, we're so worried about when we lose the placebo group. Eventually, we're going to have to give the real vaccine to people who are on saline, right? I mean, you can't expect people, you know, sign up for a clinical trial and then be restricted from having the real, the real drug. Uh, So when when that happens, what what we're planning to do for Pfizer, what we're planning to do uh, for Moderna is we're planning to tell the people, you know, there are two possibilities. We may just say you need a second dose and whoever didn't have the real thing uh, will get the real thing. And whoever did have the real thing will get a saline. But that means that after, you know, uh, you know, that probably within about four months or so, we won't have any more placebo group to compare the, real, the, the guys who got the real vaccine too. Mm-hmm. And that, that actually reduces the power of, 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 of this for long-term safety. Um, but that's what we have to do just to be, you know, proper. Uh, Moderna's current trial says everybody gets the real Moderna vaccine immediately after this is approved. Uh, Pfizer says, no, we're going to, you know, we'll do this, we'll do what, what they call a crossover trial where you Crossover was as I described from placebo into real, or from real into placebo, uh, for two more shots uh, when 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 they become eligible for the real vaccine, um, and that means that you'll be offset a little bit from the placebo group. You have an extra four months of, of history of, of of having no of having nothing, and then having a and then having a uh, uh, you know a, a real vaccine, which would be helpful to understand efficacy better. But some of this long term safety, because we d- don't have a placebo, is going to be impacted a little bit. But that's what we had to do in order to do these kind of trials. And they had to let, get,
5: let me uh, ask you, Fred, if, if yeah. you have a choice between the two, which would you take?
0: Uh, <laughs> right now, statistically, there is no difference. Um, and the, the, the issues that are out there between the two are more about durability and, uh, and, and will be more about scalability than about efficacy
5: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and safety. If I had a choice right now, because I'm a little bit older, I'd take the Pfizer vaccine because there's a little bit more evidence that you have e- efficacy in the elderly populations uh, with Pfizer. But again, it's not statistically significant. Um, so that that that. But the the most important factors are going to be durability, right? What's going to happen is when you go up to um, when you go up to th- this chart, the most important things are what's happening with down the bottom, right? Safety and efficacy seem like they're pretty good. But if we have efficacy that only is symptomologic and we have very poor durability, you can imagine that that's going to be a real problem uh, because what's going to happen is you're going to have to constantly see whether or not you've got – you're going to have to constantly kind of – take serology te- tests to find out whether or not the, the vaccine is still durable or not. Uh, and that's, that, that, that's a factor that's, that's going to be awkward. And if it's not scalable, F- Pfizer's is much less scalable than Moderna. So out in the field, if, it, if we find out that we really can't keep this thing cold enough and the efficacy drops significantly in real life, uh, then again, the Moderna vaccine would come up way ahead of the F- Pfizer vaccine. So we have to, we, there's a little bit where we're lacking information to make a final decision about which I would take personally, but I would definitely take one of them. And it, if it was offered to me, there's no doubt about it. Uh, this is just such a good vaccine compared to having no protection at all. What What are
2: you hearing about the availability of these vaccines? I know there was some controversy last week about uh-huh. Pfizer saying they had, you know, Millions of doses sitting in warehouses, and they hadn't been told where to ship them or yeah. or, or when to ship them. Yeah, that we do. We, so, what are you hearing about that?
0: So, yeah, you know, I am working with OWS. We do have, uh, you know, a, a extra dosing, um, uh, and that's because uh, uh, we haven't been told where to ship. So, so Pfizer ships directly. Uh, Pfizer gets their orders and they ship directly to the final injection sites and states weren't up for that they weren't up to say to tell Pfizer you know ship to this hospital right now they have sufficient capacity And and the hospitals weren't able to tell them we've got enough minus 70. Degrees Celsius capacity to take this on, or we have enough people signed up to do all those doses uh, for in the, in, the, in the next five days, but right? you got to do a thousand doses within five days. That's a lot of, that's a lot of shots if you don't have the refrigerator capacity. So they were worried that if they don't get, you know, they, they knew who was signed up, but they, they were worried that if they didn't uh, get the actual order and the order entry system through the Tiberia system that CDC set up, that they would be wasting doses. The other thing we found about Pfizer is that they actually have seven doses per vial if you do it right, rather than just five. And so all of a sudden, people had a lot more <laughs> than they anticipated. They were suddenly, you know, you can imagine, that's, you know, that's that's uh, that's what, 20% extra you've got, yeah. 14, 15% extra you've got in every vial. And so they were, you know, scrambling around trying to get, get people to vaccinate, um, you know, uh, that, that that weren't signed up yet and hadn't, hadn't hadn't signed off on the paperwork yet. So it was a little bit of a... Of a you know teething problem initially the other big problem that we had the real problem that, that General General Perna had and he took the blame for it but he didn't have to frankly it was because the FDA uh, requires uh, a, a period a two day period to um, uh, to in, in in quarantine to make sure that the vials are properly. Um, The the vials don't have any uh, bacteria growing in them and so on. So we've got a, a, there's a, there's a release period. And typically for many viruses, that can be up to six to six months. Uh, So the fact that we got down to two days is remarkable, but they, they hadn't, they hadn't Calculated that in, and we're producing this stuff at such a rate um, that if you a couple of days means several million vials, um, so that 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 uh, that that period hadn't been calculated into the the demand projections uh, appropriately uh, or the supply availability projections, and so well, that.
5: Let, that is- let me ask you too. These refrigerated trucks that they're using for temporary morgues, I, I don't know much about them. Can they go to minus seventy degrees Celsius? Those refrigerated trucks or not? So. No,
0: no, they're not. They're they're uh uh you know I, I they're typically uh, at a refrigeration rates. We don't even freeze the bodies.
5: Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So so right. the, the, the the so that's not and and they have to really precisely control every every vial has a thermal indicator on it. It would indicate whether you're on or off. And the problem is, if you waste too much of this, you know, the, the refrigerator trucks don't have enough precision in, in that. If you look at those refrigerators, the, the minus 70 refrigerators, they're only about the size of a pizza box, right? They're mm. very narrow, very small. So they don't raise the ri, rise much. You don't have much t- temperature difference in, in, that, in that distance. Minus 70 is uh, minus 70 degrees Celsius. It's almost minus 100 Fahrenheit. You know that you you can't keep that much <laughs> that much space that cold. I was going to say that's
2: like outer solar system cold. Right?
0: That's,
2: right. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. You're More talking Mars. about Mars, exactly. Yeah. You're starting to get to hard planet or what are they called? Europa, uh, 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 the Saturnian or the Jupiterian moons kind of levels of cold. I think. <laughs> And not quite Neptune or Uranus, but close apparently. So, <laughs> so I'll just show you some of the data that came back in safety, um, and then because uh, that's the most important. Here, you asked about you asked about um, adverse events, uh, yeah. especially around allergy, and you can see uh, what we. What this is, is it's a it's a fair, it's a fairly complicated Monte Carlo simulation that I've simplified a little bit. But it shows what happens if you've got a serious adverse event that, that hits between 1% and 10% of your population. That's an allergy, right? And that is on the left-hand side. And you can see that what happens is that you do get a big separation early on when people are surprised by an adverse event. But eventually, those people start to move themselves out of the population, and you're able to absorb that population um, and, and, and address it differently. Uh, and the rest of the population then gets down to a. You can see the 1,200 dose with no vaccine uh, to 3 375 with a vaccine that has an adverse event between one and two per, Between one and ten percent of the population unable to take it due to an allergy. Hmm. Uh, we're we're well below one percent, right? We're we're six and a million, so we're well below that level. Even even if we were at one or one to ten percent for an allergy, you're not going to get that much of an it. In- a negative impact where you get a really bad impact on a serious adverse event if you suddenly have a big population uh, that has a high mortality. And that's on the right-hand side. And you can mm-hmm. see that if you have a high mortality um, rate uh, and you're, and those people are excluded because they have a, a, a consistent adverse events. Uh, so for example, if all the diabetic patients couldn't take this uh, that's a big part of the population. And, and if 10% of those diabetic populations couldn't take the vaccine, it, you would see, you, you you would have a very low drop in the total death rate. Right? It's from 1,200 to 1,100 on, on that right-hand piece. Oh, that's just with a single vaccine. Uh, if it's 1%, Better, it's found to 485, but it still is not as still is not as good as if it's just an allergy that's sort of random occurs, you know, uh, because of, uh, because the allergy occurs versus if you've got something that's systematic in your population that's gonna that, that really has a problem and could die. So that 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 that's the difference between a serious adverse event and an allergy. Uh, and the serious adverse events we have not seen, and I don't think they're going to uh, show up, which is great. We have seen some allergies at a much lower level than this, and it doesn't really impact. The vaccine rollout or the impact on herd, achieving herd immunity much, which is great. So here's uh, uh, the, the ultimate question: Does do, do these do these adverse events cause death? And the answer is no. Uh, you can see that in fact there are more deaths in the placebo group than in the Pfizer. Drug and, and Moderna, it was actually almost statistically significant lower in the in the, in the people who took the vaccine versus the the, the placebo. It may be that there's uh, b- benefits to taking the vaccine generally that uh, that are causing a lower death rate. Believe it or not, so um, the, uh, the it turns out that there are no serious adverse events that are going to increase death rate. You are going to read about people. You know, my uncle Joe. Uh, you know, three days after he took this terrible vaccine, you know, he had a massive heart attack. Well. What this says is statistically, the chance that Uncle Joe died of that heart attack because of the vaccine and the chances that he just, his time was up, sadly, um, that, that, that you can't distinguish between the two. Uh, that even though you'll hear anecdotes about a terrible thing that happened to someone who just, just after they took a vaccine, that happened due to chance, uh, according to these data right here, which are, which are statistically significant, not due uh, to the vaccine. Um, And so the risk benefit basically is great. Right. It's for for the proposed indication. uh, It's effective. It's not it's it's extremely safe. Uh, You can see, you know, for, you know, half these people actually had the the vaccine, half of them did not. Uh, And the overall efficacy was that was as high as we think it was. They are going to do some more clinical studies. They're going to take a look at boostability and durability. These are these will be really critical, right? How often do we have to take these stupid things, right? If it's if it's once once and done, or, or you know, once you, you know, what we call we prime them and then we boost them. Uh, if that's all all we need for our lifetimes, that would be fabulous, and we will you know really eliminate the scourge completely. But if it's something we have to take every year, uh, and people aren't very enthusiastic about it, uh, then we're going to ha- we're going to be fighting this for the rest of our lives. Um, well, particularly,
5: particularly if the day two and three are really not good people will remember that right and not be really excited about going through that again right
0: <laughs> that's that's exactly right as interestingly as they get older that that they that day that day two effect that for second dose and boostability dose won't be as bad but they won't probably won't give it a chance um, right. but that, that's exactly it yeah if you're boostable chances are you've got you know you're going to have a slightly bigger uh you know negative effect reactogenicity than if you aren't because you've got some of those antibodies in you already we want to do dose ranging studies, uh, especially uh, uh, the dose ranging. What we talked about was: can we get about, can we get away with one dose in some populations? Um, we're not terribly enthusiastic about this from the from the public side because you know if it was is really you know ninety five if it's ninety five percent effective, and uh, with two doses and it's only eighty percent with one dose, that ten that that believe it or not that fifteen percent is really. It's really, really important, and I'll sh- and and that's because we're pretty tight on the herd immunity, and I'll show you that in a second. Um, but uh, the and the pharmaceutical industry doesn't want that because it halves their market, right? If you go from <laughs> two doses to one dose, and you're selling everything for ten dollars a piece, then all of a sudden your market goes in half, and so you know it's still a five billion dollar market instead of a twelve billion dollar market, but it's it's smaller, you know. <laughs> so they're not really enthusiastic about doing the study either, frankly, <laughs> unless it gets them gets it out faster and leaves them you know, more monopoly power. Um, the pr- use of pregnancy and pediatrics, they are, uh, the American Association of Pediatrics did come out and say, we think that the overall pregnant women upon the consultation of the doctor should get the vaccine, uh, but certainly not the not not the young children yet. Uh, use of immunocompromised, again, people are saying, looks like from a risk-benefit analysis, better to take it than not take it, even if you are immunocompromised. Uh, we want to take a look, especially at stability, right? Because the poor people, it turns out that if you are um, searching for herd immunity and suppose 70% of people are herd immune and everyone around you is sick and, and can, and has COVID. Well, that 70% herd, herd immunity. The 30% who didn't take the vaccine, they're still super at risk, right? Cause they're eventually going to get touched by somebody uh, around the world somewhere uh, with, with the virus and, get, and come down with a bad disease. So you want to make sure that, 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 uh, stable second generation formulation gets out to rural populations, lesser developed countries, everywhere in the world. So that 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 refrigerator stable second generation formulation for Pfizer especially is important. And um, you can see Pfizer wants to put this in in the flu vaccine. These are multivalent vaccine opportunities. I'm I'm actually I'm an expert in that space, and that's a great idea. You know, if we have to do this every year, you may as well get it all together. Um, sure. So. And, and so this is uh, some of the things that they're, they're going to be looking at now that they're on the market with EUA. We don't have to have all these studies done in order to get the real final approval, uh, The BL, what they call the BLA. The, uh, this is the biologicals license a, uh, uh, application. Uh, the BLA uh, should come out probably in June, July timeframe for both these companies.
5: Let me ask also, I've been hearing that Johnson & Johnson's going to come out with one or is coming out with one that's a one-dose vaccine. Is that correct? That's
0: right. Yes, that's right. Uh, J&J uh, has always been looking at the one-dose option. They're, they're, uh, they have actually, what they, what they did is they realized, gosh, now that we've got real vaccines out there uh, that are effective at 95%, we better get going. They originally had design, designed their trial with 60,000 patients. So they really wanted to look at a lot of different patients to be able to say, with, with a lot of certainty that they were good for any population. Uh, and so they had a broader inclusion, exclusion criteria selection process. Um, and since uh, the EUA approvals of, of Pfizer and Moderna, they've reduced their size of study to 30,000. So they should be ready to conclude that study um, by mid January and on the market, um, mid January to mid February and on the market, by kind of March first is what I'm projecting right now. AstraZeneca has ha, ha, uses a slightly different vector uh, and a slightly different piece of, of mRNA, um, uh, and they are going to be approved in the UK. But they made those mistakes, so they have to go back for the US and demonstrate either a ninety, a 90 plus percent of efficacy rate um, in in the half dose plus the full dose uh, boost, or to, to resolve themselves to be uh, under the, uh, to, to just focus on the under 55 age group and have a vaccine that's about 70% effective. My guess is that, um, you know, I, th- I think single dose will be less durable and it will be less effective than the big dose, but it makes a big difference when you have a single dose in what happens to um, how fast you get to herd immunity. And I can show you that um, here where you can see that with Pfizer, and Moderna, um, this is how fast it is. It's, it's, it's going to take us till at least October kind of Halloween timeframes to get to a point where we think where we're getting pretty comfortable um, with most people around us. Now some communities won't be inoculated appropriately that we will know that have to wear our masks, but generally we think the inflection points around uh, for if we only have Pfizer and Moderna, which, with, which have two doses, Moderna, for example, uh, it, it's, you, you're ready to go with Moderna. You have to take the first dose. 28 days later, you take the second dose. 14 days after that, that was their endpoint for efficacy. So you've got to wait six weeks after you've taken your first dose of the vaccine to truly be what they, what they would consider protected. Now, yeah. you'll have some protection between that period of time, but we're not sure about how much. And so, you know, we, we really can't count on that for what they call the herd immunity effect until six weeks later. So you can see how long, and, and, and for Pfizer, it's one month, right? You take one dose, 21 days later, you take a second dose, seven days later after that, that was Pfizer's endpoint. And they found that, you know, after that one month period, you were 95% effective. Moderna took a month and a half to find that 95% effectiveness. Hmm. So it takes a long time to march down that herd immunity curve. Now you've got J and J. Suppose J and J is ninety percent effective after just seven days.
5: Ooh, right? Yeah.
0: Well, that, look what happens to your curve. That's that. <laughs> your <laughs> curve gets well. But like, gosh, by August we could be all set versus having to wait until Halloween. So well, that, plus
5: that, you yeah. only have to go through the day two and three once, right? Oh yeah.
0: But then you have nice, to go.
5: You know? <laughs> no second dose,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is a big factor, like we talked about. So yeah. So it turns out that single dose when you now, eventually it'll all level out and, you know, over time, you know, if you have to have a booster every month, every year for J&J or every year with Pfizer, you're not going to care much. But in the initial bouts of the fights that we're having against uh, against uh, the, the virus, it turns out single dose is really important. Hmm. Okay, okay we've got about three minutes left. Oh cow, that went fast, you guys. We, we haven't even talked about
1: all the important <laughs> it things. Always does,
0: <laughs> right? It always does. <laughs> well, what we, so this is the reason that 85% or 95% makes a big difference. And I'll just tell you quickly that basically if we get 90% effectiveness, but we only take only half of us take it, we're not going to be herd immune and we're going to have to keep wearing masks and everything else. So it turns out that when you're at 85% or 95%, it makes a big difference. That first or second dose question is that you want to take the two doses, but it mm-hmm. also means that promotion and pushing people to take their vaccine and making sure they take the two doses, is going to be the most important part of this in the long run. Hmm. So, with that, why don't we talk about some other things? was Christmas. You guys have a good Christmas.
5: Yes, I, I didn't listen to you, and I did visit my family, but it was a small gathering. Uh, uh, the first time I'd seen them in a long time. So, and I said I'm not coming if anybody is experiencing any of these symptoms, and I gave them the list of symptoms. And I so think. My, we're-
2: yeah, well, I I, uh, I only got together with my with my pod, which is basically my two kids and their significant others. We've been we've been seeing each other throughout this entire pandemic, and I know they're extremely careful. So uh, although you can never tell who they might come in contact with, so there is some risk
0: there. But you know. well, you know, one of these days we should probably talk about what they call bubble management, and this has a lot to do um, with um, with uh, blockchain work where you look at and actually have verifiable amounts of likelihood that each person in your bubble uh, has or has not made contact with other people who are ill with COVID. And then mm-hmm. you manage the blockchain like, as you would with the currency uh, or any other uh, blockchain to say, yes, I could have the disease or no, I probably don't have the disease. And understand it's sort of it's sort of like a uh, an ossimeter, if you will, that you're wearing uh, in 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 the in the cyber world, and we'll talk about that at some point. One, one thing though, New Year's is coming up. Um, <laughs> people get people drink a little bit, and they start to sing, and they start to dance, and 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 celebrate the New Year. This year, let's not do that. Yeah,
5: <laughs> but I think that's a, that's a tradition uh, at the Rausch House. They'll be singing, <laughs> dancing, and drinking. So I
2: mean... yeah, but only the, <laughs> this year, only in your pod, only in your pod. I, I have I have long considered New Year's Eve to be the sort of ultimate amateur night and and we stay home. I mean, you know, we stay you know, last year, we were actually in a hotel room uh, visiting Ooh. my in-laws, but we, it was just the two of us. So. I,
0: I, I love going out. And they have great you know symphonies and things that you know they celebrate the New Year. Every year we do this, and this year we're not going to do that. So. Yeah. Well, it, I, I'm lovely. wearing
5: my tuxedo jacket in honor of New Year's coming <laughs> up on, uh, well, I guess, Friday, right? That's New Year's. <laughs>
0: yeah, it is. It is. So have a great time, and we'll talk next week,
5: as always. I'm All right. We'll, we'll talk to you next year, Fred. Ne- next year. We'll see, we'll yes, see you next year. Yes. Absolutely.
2: <laughs> okay. all right well, out, thanks matt. a lot uh fred brown informative as always and uh, we'll we'll talk to you soon uh for right now it's
1: matt roush and mike brennan
2: and you've been watching the m squared tech
1: thanks for listening to m squared techcast a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews.